Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, two weeks ago, Christy Yates, uh, as part of uh, her sharing her Pentecost art, read to us those beautiful lines, haunting lines from Annie Dillard about how we should wear crash helmets when we come to church. This week's scripture readings is one of those. And if you were dozing through that portion, um, it's a real uh, scorcher. Jeremiah talked about God coming like a dread warrior. We read the gospel today, and the, the theme only continues. Don't be afraid of those who can only destroy the body. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown them before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The dread warrior. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, we also talked about how the lectionary forces us to read scriptures that we might avoid otherwise. Exhibit A this morning. We need this scripture. Our life depends on it. If our faith is to be anything more than a, a docile belief system that is our chosen path for self-achievement, then we need the kind of a resting voice of God that wakes us up. We have to read these scriptures deeply as we do all scriptures. Certain parts of the Bible we can only understand if we read the whole Bible. And yet we also need to read all of the Gospels. We need to read all of Jesus' words, all of his life, all of his teaching. We need to do this so that we can be relieved of our caricature of a placid Jesus who'd never rock us to our core, who'd never say anything that would unnerve us, who would never say anything that didn't fit within the system of religion that we've constructed. A Jesus who would never ask anything of us that might cost us something, something dear. A Jesus who would never ask anything of us that might require more of us than self-affirmation or a commitment to follow our impulses. If we had backed up before this, it actually gets worse before it gets better. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles and he told them to announce the kingdom had come near. And he warned them that it was going to be difficult. He told them they were going to be dogged and tortured by religious powers. He told them they were going to be threatened and harassed by political powers. He told them they were going to be persecuted and hated. He told them that even in some cases, their own families would reject them. Brother will betray brother to death he said, and a father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, 
but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. There is no way around this arresting fact from the scriptures that Jesus is always a threat to the power structures of the world. That might find sound comforting to us, perhaps, if we also are at odds with some of the power structures of the world. But as we continue to read, what we also find out is that Jesus is a threat to us as well. Jesus is a threat to our tidy delusions about our life. As I, uh, I grew up in a, a form of fundamentalism, and as I uh, left that, I began to think that that was fundamentally the problem of why anyone would ever reject Jesus. I thought, you know, it's really just because we have told this story so poorly and messed up Jesus' image to the world so bad that if we could just tell this story with the full graciousness and kindness of God in Christ, then of course, everyone's going to want that. Now, uh, we definitely had screwed up the picture of Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But the more I listened to Jesus, the more I encountered the realities of my own heart, I realized that Jesus wasn't killed on a cross because he didn't explain his message clear enough. Jesus was not murdered because he didn't show his kindness well enough. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have enough creativity, enough grace. It wasn't that he hadn't developed a progressive or sophisticated enough theology. Jesus was murdered because he was a threat. There's something in the human psyche that's foolishly hell-bent on self-deception and self-destruction. We have to be lured by love out of this morass. And sometimes we need words that jolt us awake. When I was, uh, when we were in Clemson, South Carolina, and I don't know, year three or four there, I, I'd been in a long depression. It had been about a year. And I was not handling it well. I wasn't uh, getting the kind of help that I needed. And there was one particular evening that I remember. It was late. The boys were already asleep. And I remember Miska saying to me, I can't be the one to carry you through this. I can't, I can't carry that kind of burden. I need you to rise up to this. And I, I left the house and went on a walk in the neighborhood because I, I needed to think. And that felt like such a wound because at the time, Miska was the only one that I was sort of leaning on. I wasn't getting good therapy. <laughs> and I was using her as my therapy, and that wasn't fair. And I remember that moment, and I remember how much those words wounded me. But they were necessary. They were spoken in love, maybe a little bit of desperation too. But they were spoken in love, and those words woke me up. I think Jesus is doing something like that here. I think Jesus is waking us up. Jesus, I don't know if you heard sort of the flow of this. He tells his followers, don't be afraid. He says again, don't be afraid. And then he says, well, be afraid. 
And then he says, don't be afraid. So make up your mind, Jesus, what is it? He tells us we're not to fear those powers that are so prevalent in our world, the ones who seek to manipulate us, to turn us against one another, to make us bend to their will, to their vision of the world, their degraded, dehumanizing way of seeing things. And apparently the only real way, the only true way to not be afraid is to have another kind of fear. The word fear does a number of different things in the Bible and doesn't always mean the same thing. Whenever fear is turned inward, fixated on our anxieties, our demands for our life, our compulsivity, whenever it emerges out of our panic, our fear that we may not have control of our life, in these cases, then fear is a terror. It's the way most of us think of now when we think of the word fear, it's, it's a kind of terror. Whenever fear is turned outward, compulsively judging what others can do to us or what others think of us or how others might reject us or how others might take something from us, then fear is a terror. However, in the Bible, fear of God is another thing altogether. This kind of fear is a holy awe that sets our mind right. It's a reverence that jolts us out of our self-delusion. It's a humbling encounter with the liberating truth that God is above us, stronger than us, more than us. The gravity of this encounter with this God actually silences anxieties because we are yielding to the Holy One who we have found because of Jesus is in fact not evil or vengeful, but good to the very core. The most fearful children are those who've never encountered an authority that overwhelms them. This is why we have this strange paradox in scripture. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And John tells us there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. As soon as Jesus said, well, fear the one who can, could destroy both body and soul in hell. And I, I don't know if this is quite right, but I love the fact that he doesn't say will. He just is like, could, if he wanted to, powerful enough. Immediately, he says, but aren't two sparrows sold for just a penny? You're not one of them. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Not even a sparrow. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than sparrows. When you fear the Lord, you find out in this strange paradox, there's actually nothing to fear. Lance Pape said, proper fear of God always manifests itself in the world of human affairs as fearlessness. 
It seems to me in a moment in our history where it seems like we have lost this deep reverence of God, we are also some of the most fearful people could ever imagine. The whole point of this passage is his sending out of his apostles into the world. And he knows that trouble's coming. He knows that pro proclaiming the kingdom of God will often put you at odds with the powers of this world. If we don't have a God large enough, powerful enough, strong enough, bold enough to overwhelm every opposition, to overwhelm every dark power, to overwhelm everything that would rob our soul of its goodness and joy, then we should be afraid. But in these arresting words of Jesus, we hear that that's not the case. And it's why we could hear the words from Jeremiah this morning. Oh Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. In the cross of Jesus, we find a God who actually never denies us. This is the strangeness of this. In the cross of Jesus, we have a God who chooses to empty himself of everything he, he would cling to rightfully for the sake of love. In the cross of Jesus, we have a God who lowers himself to such a radical extent that God is now a God of humility. God comes to us with great tenderness. These images of God held together, a God who is absolutely powerful, a God who is mighty, a God who is strong, a God who can overwhelm, and yet a God with all of that power and force and might who bends and lowers God's own being to be so small, to be so gentle, to be so humble. This is our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.